This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Changing 50, 60 years old habits will require a significant change in leadership, mindset, behavior, way of working. The good thing is there is the high pressure to deliver on all these projects on budget, on time. That's senior partner Christoph Schmitz describing the urgency for companies to rethink the way they manage capital projects. He joins me and senior partner Stefan Fuchs to talk about how companies can take advantage of the trillions in infrastructure investment dollars coming their way. And after, if you have perfectionist syndrome, this one is for you. Senior partner Dimka Kuypers shares how seeking perfection prevented her from finding it. Stefan, Christoph, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks, Roberto, for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. We'll get right to it. You wrote an article about how capital projects could receive $130 trillion from public and private sources in the next five years. That capital would be primarily earmarked for decarbonization and infrastructure renewal. Where is all the money coming from and where is it all going to? Which sectors, which initiatives? Stefan? The first thing we need to establish is this money that you're talking about is truly a global allocation across literally every single asset class. It truly is, I think, a once in a lifetime opportunity to rebuild critical infrastructure. And with critical infrastructure, I think we, we define not just public infrastructure, but truly all infrastructure across all asset classes. At the same time, it is a opportunity to use this money to think about decarbonization. There will likely not be another wave of capital investments as the one that we're seeing right now to help us decarbonize critical infrastructure. So we're talking about both building new infrastructure, but at the same time decarbonizing that new infrastructure that we are building for future generations to come. To build on that, roughly 50% of this money will end up in real infrastructure and the other 50% in sustainability-induced infrastructure like solar plants, like wind parks, like electrolyzers, like new technologies in steel manufacturing and others. So these are, as you just mentioned, the two core drivers, and there's probably a 50-50 allocation of the money to these two sources. In the article, you also note the challenges for executives in managing this influx of capital. What's different about this wave of capital investment and what are some examples of the obstacles that executives may face? Christoph? We believe that the two differences and challenges will be, on the one hand, just the sheer amount of money to be spent. The second point is clearly the increased complexity of the projects. What do I mean with that? If you take many of the sustainability-induced projects, they are no longer what I would call pure technical projects, but they will need the involvement of many, many more stakeholders from states and authorities to policymakers to regulators, but also, on the other hand, managing the shortage of resources that we will experience on labor, on assets uh, like cranes, uh, raw materials, etc. So the complexity is just significantly increasing and will require a much more rigorous and sophisticated stakeholder management. And at the same time, the speed to delivery 
will need to increase. To give you an example, um, some of the, the assets need to be in place and up and running in 2027 to achieve the targets, where typically a normal licensing and approval process would take five to seven years. So we will need to see, similar as we have seen it in the Wexign development recently, a significant compression of the timelines to just meet our targets. So I think that the point around complexity is key to acknowledge, and I'm sure many listeners who are in the capital space know this, but a capital project is not typically a one-to-one relationship. It's a one-to-many-hundreds relationship. And so as the speed of execution goes up, the interdependencies between those different stakeholders that need to be able to work together in a seamless fashion increases exponentially as well. To Christoph's point, I think the, the complexity is one thing. I may add another one, which is this obviously is, is putting a lot of pressure on suppliers and the industry that is supplying all these capital projects. Think about the amount of green steel we need to produce in order to actually decarbonize projects. There is frankly not enough capacity in the market today in order to produce sufficient amount of green steel, so low carbon steel, that lets us meet those targets. And the same is true with the workforce, but we're already seeing, particularly in the U.S., certain geographies in, in Arizona and North Carolina and Ohio that have seen significant amount of capital inflow already and their labor pools are being significantly impacted by that. We've had a significant amount of people leave the workforce post-COVID. We have not been able to refill those jobs. And so with this massive influx and the inflationary pressures we're seeing, costs are going to go up. On average, we're seeing 10 to 15% cost increases in the U.S. today, and schedules will continue to get squeezed. And so you add those things together, the complexity of the projects, the pressure on the suppliers and the labor pool, this is going to be a very difficult task to deliver against. One measure will not go away, and that is that return on invested capital will stay the key marker for capital markets to invest and for the valuation of companies. So everything which was just said increases the pressure on the, the cost side, the time uh, side, uh, or time to market side. But at the same time, this has a pressure on ROIC. So return on invested capital. And this is something which companies will need to balance going forward. On the one hand, the need to move to uh, deliver on the sustainability targets. On the other side, there's still the capital markets. And they also want their returns and their performance. And this will be another angle of required management that we will see out there. And I want to talk a little bit about another point that you make in the article around project-centric strategies that companies have traditionally used and how those might not fit the bill given the increased complexity, given the greater speed with which companies need to act. Why will this project-centric approach put companies at a disadvantage? This has such significant implications on the balance sheet of a company that it can no longer be just a project-by-project driven approach. It actually has to be elevated into the C-suite. And so what we're seeing is a much more balanced conversation with CFOs and CEOs that are saying, I have a portfolio of projects that I need to deliver against over the next five years. All these projects need to be delivered on time and on schedule. They also need to deliver against the decarbonization goals, and I need to meet certain return on invested capital metrics. That is no longer a job that can be delegated just to a project, because at the end of the day, the project needs to be able and empowered to execute against their project plans, but they should not be the ones to carry the burden of optimizing their portfolio and making sure that the entire company portfolio of capital projects is successful. 
I think the second piece I'll say is it raises the need to think differently about delivering these projects. And what we mean by that, and we've been talking about this for a couple of years now, the use of analytics and the use of digital technology is playing a key role in this delivery approach. We're seeing many more clients that are investing together with their engineering construction firm partners to say, how do we establish a baseline where we can constructively collaborate in how to deliver these projects? How do we use machine-based learning algorithms in order to reallocate workforce dynamically when we have a shortage and we're not have idle time with workers? It's those kinds of tweaks that also then need to be cut across the portfolio of projects because the technology itself would not deliver just an A project, but actually can be replicated. And there's a third point I'll make, which is approach towards best practices. How do we accelerate knowledge sharing? How do we make sure that the best practices from a project carry over in real time to another project and it's not a post-mortem once the project is done, but it's a real-time and real-life learning exercise? I think all those things have to come together. And, and then it's very easily, I think, understood that it no longer is a project-by-project project conversation, but it has to be a C-suite conversation. It has to be a portfolio conversation in order to be successful. How hard or how easy will it be for companies to change mindsets to that degree or the way that they're operating? We're talking here about a field uh, that in the last 60 years was probably not the most innovative uh, in terms of uh, adopting Industry 4.0 data-based, advanced analytics-based technologies. And uh, we will not only need to see this, but we also will need to see that the way how to run projects will need to change. Changing 50, 60 years old habits uh, will require significant change in leadership, mindset, behavior, way of working. The good thing is there is the high pressure to deliver on all these projects on budget, on time. Uh, So there will be a burning platform to to deliver on that on the one hand. On the other side, this is something which will need to be led from the top and is probably one of the most fundamental changes that this industry has seen in the last 50 years. So it's a true challenge, an Everest challenge in front of us here. Thinking about the collaboration and the innovation required to meet the moment, can you talk about examples of companies that have started to make moves in that direction? Yeah, I'll give you an example on on the decarbonization piece, because I think it is truly an example of of innovation. So we've been supporting a food company who's been thinking about what their global footprint should look like when it comes to their facilities where they produce for local markets. And they were very explicit about they are going to make those allocation decisions based on their carbon footprint. Carbon footprint, not just in the sense of how much energy are they going to consume, carbon footprint in what kind of energy sources will they use? Is this a renewable energy source or are they going to use a non-renewable energy source? Carbon footprint in the sense of what is the outlook of fresh drinking water available and where are they going to build their plan for the next 20 years and what's their impact going to be on the fresh drinking water supply for the community that they're going to be in? Carbon footprint in the sense of how far are we going to truck the products if we pick site A or site B and what are the implications on trucking costs? And then carbon footprint, when it came down to how do we actually build the building? So we're back to how do we build this in a greener way? To me, as an example, when senior leaders in organizations put their minds to it, it actually can happen. It certainly wasn't easy. And it certainly was a lot of work and a lot of consideration, especially as they built 
multiple facilities around the globe. But it shows that they actually found a way to make this an innovative process to meet their goals, to decarbonize, and at the same time have an apples-to-apples comparison across their portfolio of projects, which to them was really important so they could go back to their shareholders and to their board of management and, and just explain why they're making certain decisions in China and the US and Indonesia and wherever else they were building. And if you allow just um, a general remark, if you look at industries, innovation very often happens faster and more radical outside the incumbent players. And this is also what we currently see in our space, where you see currently attackers in the, for example, electric vehicle environment, battery factories and others that are not incumbents, but they have the, the benefit, and you can see it in speed and in action, that they don't need to change so much, but that they, they immediately can deploy innovative processes, technologies, etc., to be faster and more effective and efficient. So innovation is happening currently in these attacker fields, and the incumbents will need to catch up, accelerate uh, to meet the speed of innovation we see there. Is there something to say about the importance of ecosystems in companies changing their approach to capital management? If you look at how innovation and change happens, it typically requires singularities that trigger this change. That's, by the way, to the human nature. We are just a complacent uh, being. We want standards and uh, we don't like change. And therefore, and that, that's another one that I personally am uh, a little bit sad about. It's very often put into a very negative and threatening context so that uh, you need to change to defend or whatever. And uh, I like this debate much better. How can we capture this opportunity for a better in all the dimensions, making this a much more effective and efficient industry, accelerating the decarbonization uh, that we need to deliver against? How can this industry be a contributor to this acceleration and making this a green planet? This is, I believe, the debate we need. And then also change might come into a much more positive connotation that we typically see it and where it's put. So it's a huge opportunity and at the same time also an obligation for the industry because this is different to the last 30, 40 years where we had an era of tech, of IT, of uh, AI, KI and whatever. This game on decarbonizing the world and meeting our CO2 and decarbonization targets will depend on if we get the assets into place. I think Christoph nailed it. Like the only thing I'll say, Roberta, is if you look at our research and you see that majority of the capital projects are 80% over budget and months behind schedule, you have to ask yourself the question, what can we be doing differently in order to uh, avoid similar outcomes in this day and age? And $110, $130 trillion is a lot of money, but imagine that being 80% over budget. <laughs> that suddenly is a whole lot more money. And so this notion of what can we do differently that needs to happen. Stefan, what can companies do? What can they start to do now to change their approach to capital project management? It has to be a C-suite agenda item. In that context, it has to be linked to the company's strategy. We would say CapEx may be the new OpEx in the sense that for the last 10 years or so, most companies were focused on how do I work my P&L and how do I reduce my operating cost? Now it may actually be, okay, how do I work my balance sheet for the next 10 years in order to make sure I can deliver against the capital expenditures that I need to? And how do I optimize on, on this front? 
I think the second piece needs to be leveraging data. The conversation too often is about past experiences and what has worked in the past versus what's working today and what's actually happening in the field, so to speak, on a day-to-day basis. And then I think third, across the ecosystem that you described or the end-to-end value chain, you need to have conversations about more collaborative contracting behavior, more collaborative partnerships, where it's no longer a question of how do I reduce my risk and move liability from party A to party B, because we all know that's a zero-sum game, but how do I reduce risk, period? And what do we both parties need to do? And we, we, we've seen this in many industrial industries in the past. I mean, think about the automotive industry, think about semiconductor industry, the aerospace industry. Everybody has gone through this transition where tier one suppliers who historically have been treated as vendors suddenly started to become component suppliers and partners to the OEMs. And they've been able to make that shift. So it's we're not talking about concepts that are way out there and haven't been successful in other sectors. I think it's a matter of how do we apply them successfully in this space? I just wanted to complement uh, what, what Stefan said, because I believe there is two more things. Number one is we will need as an industry or the industries need to make sure that there is capability building and the right capabilities in the organizations. And secondly, the right mindset. We debated uh, lengthy here about it. It will require a significant rethinking how to lead and to steer all of that. And last but not least, there is the question of resources. I believe that the industry as total needs to rethink how do we make sure and where do we get the resources from to deliver against all of that. And resources is is everything. It is uh, people, probably foremost, but also where do we get the raw materials and the building materials from? Where do we get the land from? So I think that's um, closing the loop to the very beginning, to the complexity. It's not only in the hands of the companies to just, quote unquote, deliver the project. It will require managing and aligning full supply chains, resource pools, etc. And that is something where many companies should start crafting a plan and a strategy around how to do that. All of that, uh, as we said earlier, under the time pressure. What advice do you have for the CEO who needs to go about changing mindsets, right? How can the CEO bring people on board with all this change? We believe the CEOs need to make this a C-suite topic. That might mean that the installation of a chief technology officer uh, is required, so to really anchor this on the C-suite, but making this a non-delegatable topic, this is what we believe is the most important thing. I think the other one or two points I would make, I think one, having that as part of your regular dialogue with the board of directors or with the management team by itself will raise the significance and the importance. We need to have a similar in-depth and fact-based conversation about what our capital costs are doing as we used to have about what our cost of goods sold are. And so just simply making that a part of the regular management agenda will shine a light on it. And I would say the third one is not accepting the status quo as good enough of an answer. I think there is a, there is a role of being a bit of the chief instigator and asking for innovation and asking for what can be done differently as a means to keep uh, pushing the ceiling and saying, okay, what are we trying? What have we learned? What are the best practices? How do we replicate this? And last but not least, I believe there is also a new role that probably only the CEOs can take. If and many of these projects will require this, 
there is a need for interaction with authorities, with governments, with regulators, with policymakers. Again, nothing you can delegate. I personally also believe that it might be beyond the battery limits of a company. So that whole industries, CEOs and C-suites need to go shoulder to shoulder and approach authorities and say, hey, how do we get this compressed? How do we get this accelerated? So it's totally new and probably unseen and unheard of. And this is, again, C-suite leadership requirement. It's a real opportunity. And that should be the mindset that we should carry forward and spread to the world. It's an opportunity to save our planet or contribute at least to it. Stefan, Christoph, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Roberta. It was a pleasure being here. It was uh, fun talking and looking forward to many more conversations with hopefully some of our listeners here and embarking on uh, a debate. It is vigorous and will change the future. And now we hear from senior partner Dimfka Kuipers from our Rookie Moment series about how deeply imperfect perfectionism is. Yeah, so the first time I worked as a project manager, I was going to do everything perfect. I was going to be the best client leader McKinsey and the client would have ever seen, the best problem solver and the best team leader. And coming into the role, I'd gotten feedback because that's what we do at McKinsey. We give each other constant feedback. I'd gotten feedback I was decent at, you know, leading clients and solving problems and getting things done. What I didn't get a great amount of you know, compliments about was how I lead people and lead teams. And so I thought, okay, now is my chance. They made me a project manager. Hell, am I going to get it right? And so what I did is I told the team that I really, really, really wanted to be the best people leader they'd ever had, their best project manager, most appreciative of them and their development. And so that went absolutely nowhere. At the end of the study, we did the feedback and I was super excited because I assumed like, hey, I really spent time on this and I made an effort and and the feedback I got was an endless list of things that I should have done better, moments where I had missed people's emotions, you know, all the things I said at work with them on, where I felt so bad. Because, hey, this was not what I'd envisioned. I was gonna be Miss Perfect on this project. A few more projects went on, and then I got this perfect advice uh, from one of my mentors at the time. And she said, look, you're doing this completely, completely wrong. You should not emphasize the areas where you're not good at. You shouldn't say, I'm going to be the best people leader. You should say, hey, I'm good at leading clients. I'm good at solving problems. Let me use this project to help you on those dimensions. If you're interested, I can help you there. And so that's what I did. And it was fascinating to see that after that project where I did that, all of a sudden there was a 180 degree difference in the ratings because again, we give each other feedback all the time, you get all the ratings. All of a sudden I was a very good people leader and people loved the way I coached them. And what has taken that for me you know, in broader life, but also professionally is don't ever try to be perfect. I for sure am not perfect nor is anyone, uh, but also focus much more on the things you're really good at and you enjoy. So the things you're good at and enjoy, you amplify those, as opposed to focusing on the things you might not be perfect in. Well, who cares, right? You can't say, I'm completely bad at something and I'll just let it glide, right? But you don't have to be perfect in it. 
and really focus on the things you enjoy. And that gives for so much more joy and energy for yourself, for your teams, and for everyone around you. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.